Hello, welcome to Bot Academy. This month, March 2013, marks the 10th anniversary of the Iraq War. This podcast is a recording of the debate entitled Iraq, 10 Years On, Was It Worth It? that was put on by the Huffington Post and Goldsmiths University of London. Okay. Good evening. I'd like to welcome everybody to Goldsmiths this evening. My name is Des Friedman. I teach and research in the Department of Media Communications here at Goldsmiths. Now, for some of you, the Iraq War may feel feel like it happened yesterday. Some of you may have absolutely direct experience with the events that took place. For others of you, it may feel a bit more like a history lesson. So think back, cast your minds back to Britain 10 years ago, when the country was utterly polarised over the question of whether to go to war. We had the biggest protest march in British history, where some two million people took to the streets of London uh, to warn Tony Blair against joining forces with George Bush. Of course, not everything was completely polarised at the time. The vast majority of the daily press in the UK bought into the arguments about Iraq posing an immediate threat to national security. And by some uh, amazing process of editorial osmosis, all 175 of Rupert Murdoch's newspapers um, supported the invasion, with the notable exception of uh, the Papua New Guinea Courier Mail. But by the time US and UK troops started their bombing of Baghdad, the arguments were raging and they have continued to rage. Uh, Was it a war for democracy or a war for oil? Was it a war to get rid of Saddam Hussein or to reassert Western control over the Middle East? Was it about weapons of mass destruction or about mass propaganda? And was it, very importantly, a legal or an illegal war? Now, we're here tonight to reflect on these questions, but also to ask one particular uh, uh, question. Was it worth it? Now, I know that many people think this is a strange question. After a trillion dollars spent, after many hundreds of thousands of Iraqis uh, killed, how could it be seen as worth it? And public opinion does seem to bear this out, that the most recent poll carried out in the US by NBC and the Wall Street Journal found out that 60% of the US public um, believe that the war was not worth it, that, in their words, the war was not morally justified, um, and that they had been lied to by their government. The last poll in the UK that showed a majority of support of the war was in May 2004, nearly nine years ago. The question is, this isn't a historical debate. This debate matters. It matters today, as Western armies consider intervention in a range of countries in 2013, from Syria to Mali, as we face a new scramble for Africa, making sense of the war in Iran is a vital task for all of us. So I really hope you enjoy tonight, that you participate fully, you ask questions, you vote wisely, and I hand you over to your chair for the rest of the evening, the Editor-in-Chief of HuffPost in the UK, Carla Guzashi. Thank you very much. Joining the Asian invasion of Iraq 10 years ago, he was the Shadow Defence Secretary. Ben, would you like to say a 
Well, thank you very much indeed uh, for this opportunity to try and persuade so many of you to change your minds. Is any more worth it? As soon as you ask that question, I've never met a person who's taken part in a war who has a question whether it was worth it. And if we ask ourselves, are wars worth it? Our instant reaction is no. But the question I take it is, will history judge this war to have been justified? Let's take ourselves back to 9-11. Because what 9-11 did in um, defence and security terms was utterly destroy uh, the sureness that we lived in a safer and safer post-Cold War world. It shattered the illusion that we had been harmed, that threats were, had become more predictable, that the world had become safer. And it meant we had to radically alter our assessment of threat and potential threat, that we were dealing in a world where technology and globalization and mobility of populations and rising ethnic tensions, indeed the very freedoms that the Cold War, uh, the ending of the Cold War, had begun to deliver to so much of the world, uh, the increased wealth, the increased trade, the increased mobility of populations, the spread of technology, had itself become uh, a force for instability and uh, a, a force that was creating threats that were utterly unpredictable. So that the threats that we could see had to be reassessed. The possibility that Saddam Hussein's uh, crazy um, intentions and uh, which have been amply demonstrated uh, to dominate the Middle East by acquiring weapons of mass destruction suddenly took on a new and real meaning. Secondly, we were faced with an extraordinary degree of defiance. It always strikes me as uh, curious that uh, people who are very ready to declare that the war was an affront to, the, to international law, that it was an illegal war, that it was, uh, that it rode coastal forces through the United Nations and the new international legal order that so many global leaders have talked eloquently about. But this was a man who had defied no less than 17 UN resolutions, resolution after resolution after resolution, passed through the UN Security Council, unanimously backed by all the P5 or permanent members of the UN Security Council. Um, he was simply prepared to tweak the nose of the authority of the United Nations because of his non-determined and insistent non-cooperation with the UN inspectors who were mandated by the United Nations to verify that he had dismantled his, uh, his weapons of mass destruction. And let's not forget what the Iraq survey group found. Uh, it, 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 I remember a, a discussion between Tony Blair and Ian Duncan Smith. I mean, after all the dossiers and all the rubbish that Downing Street had produced in order to try and uh, persuade people that there was incontrovertible evidence, Ian Duncan Smith turned on his heel outside Tony Blair's office and said, you realise when we get in there, we may not find it. And Tony Blair said, I know. I don't know what that says about him, but the point is, we didn't know, but what we discovered when we got in there 
was what the Iraq Sailor Group established uh, after the war when it went in there to study exactly what happened. And I'll quote from the report briefly if I may. Saddam wanted to recreate, I'm quoting, Saddam wanted to recreate Iraq's WMD capability, which was essentially destroyed in 1991, after sanctions were removed and Iraq's economy stabilized. Saddam aspired to develop a nuclear capability. He intended to focus on ballistic missile and tactical chemical warfare capabilities. Saddam had managed to mitigate many of the effects of sanctions and undermine their international support. Iraq was making was within striking distance of a de facto end to the sanctions regime, which rather gives lied to the idea that long-term containment of Saddam and sanctions was a viable option. The International Survey Group, Iraq Survey Group, uncovered Iraqi plans or designs for three long-range ballistic missiles with ranges of 400 to 1,000 kilometers and for a 1,000 kilometer range cruise missile. ISG uncovered information that the Iraqi intelligence service maintained throughout 1991 to 2003 a set of undeclared covert laboratories to research and test various chemicals and poisons. So the intention was there. The capability to develop weapons programs was there. The inevitability that if uh, the war had not gone ahead, uh, that our attention would have been diverted elsewhere uh, and he would have ended the effects of sanctions. Now, nobody's denied that um, very serious mistakes were made during the planning of the invasion. Uh, the execution of the invasion itself was, was textbook. There was a complete misunderstanding, and I, I share in this, complete misunderstanding about the complexity of Iraqi society and what we would be having to deal with when we went in. I went to Basra uh, straight after the invasion, and it immediately became evident that we were sitting on a very, very potentially explosive situation with Iran on the, on the border, the Shias suddenly liberated, the Shia militias moving into uh, southern Iraq. It, I, I brought back a note saying, if we don't get this sorted out very quickly, we'll find ourselves fighting a full-scale counterinsurgency war, and so it was the case. But before we just measure the deaths that have occurred in Iraq since the election, let's just count the deaths that occurred between 1979 and 2003 under the Southern Hussein's uh, regime. Thousands upon thousands of executions, the most horrendous atrocities committed the chemical tax on his own people, the most destructive and killing war with his immediate neighbour in Iraq. And it went on and on and on. And it's quite possible uh, to calculate that the killing machine over which Saddam Hussein presided would have killed just as many people, or if not more people, that have died in the violence since the invasion of Iraq. What we can see has occurred since the removal of Saddam Hussein is, for example, the UN Measured Human Development Index in Iraq has steadily been improving. Uh, it had dropped from 76th uh, place to 126th under Saddam, but now it is improving. A lot of good work has been done, a lot of investment from the West has been put in. Five million children uh, were vaccinated. Uh, in the years immediately after the war, leading to reductions in polio and measles and mumps and rubella, mumps, rubella and malaria. Thousands of healthcare facilities have been built. 
Thousands of staff have been trained for those healthcare facilities. 100,000 primary and 40,000 secondary school teachers have been trained. Um, infrastructure has been installed. Mobile phone networks have been installed. And according to a World Bank report in September, I quote, Iraq has achieved considerable progress towards macroeconomic stability as it has achieved single-digit inflation, economic growth has resumed, both the fiscal balance and the current account balance have improved. In addition, Iraq's debt-to-GDP ratio has been on a downward trajectory. Iraq's economic growth prospects are favourable due to rising oil prices. Sounds better than the end. So as we look at the balance sheet, let's not get diverted. One minute. Let's not get simply uh, diverted by the horror of the war and its aftermath. What would have happened in Iraq if Saddam had been assassinated or had fallen from power without him? Maybe much like is happening in Syria. The reason why the removal of Saddam Hussein caused the ethnic outburst of violence is because of what he had repressed uh, over that long period, of what, uh, of what he had done to that population, much of that might well have occurred, and indeed would inevitably have occurred anyway. But the one thing that the removal of Saddam Hussein caused uh, was the freedom of the Iraqi people. And if you met Iraqi people in Iraq, you would have been moved by they, however bad the situation got, they would tell you that the price of freedom is always worth paying. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right Honourable Claire Short was a Labour MP for 27 years before standing down from Parliament in 2010. She famously quit Tony Blair's cabinet only a few weeks after the invasion of Iraq, claiming the assurances she had been given by the Prime Minister at the time of the war had been breached. Some people might say it was 10 years ago, we all know what we think. Is there any point in discussing it? And we've seen the votes, you know, that's predominant here. But it's very important to discuss it. One, because the Middle East is still unstable and dangerous and the ramifications of it are still there and people are still suffering in consequence. And two, because this is the second war in the Middle East in which Britain has participated, Suez in 1956 and then, and then this, when there were complete and absolute lies and deception in order to get to war. And this is the country we live in, and if our institutions are that unsafe, then we have to find out what happened and put things right and make sure that it doesn't happen for uh, yet another time. And it seems to me, and we asked, was it worth it? Not where the lies, how do you feel emotionally, how many people died, how much did it cost, etc. And really to answer that question, we need to put aside some of the lies, the propaganda, the feelings of anger we have, and ask, was that loss of life, the massive casualties, the deaths of up to a million Iraqis, the deaths and terrible injuries of US and UK soldiers, all the continuing mental illness, the massive economic cost, Millions of displaced Iraqis, both outside the country and within the country, 
and the destabilisation of the region, was this a price worth paying? It's not just a historical question. But to answer the question, really, we have to ask what was the war for? And that's not the easiest question to answer because different reasons were given by different actors and different reasons sometimes by the same actors about the reasons for the war when they run up to the war. In the United States it was suggested and 80% of Americans believed that the attack on the Twin Towers was organised from Iraq and that Al-Qaeda, we've heard an echo of that argument, was in cahoots with Saddam Hussein and that, as a matter of historical truth, is just false. So the Americans were led to believe something that was completely false, and that was the reason for the, for the war. So obviously, it wasn't worth it for those reasons, because, in fact, the attack on the Twin Towers was predominantly people from Saudi Arabia, and the only weapon they had was bolt cutters. And of course it was a horrible crime, and you know, a large number of people... Um, lost their life, and that was terrible, but it had nothing to do with Iraq. And we know that Dick Cheney, following it, went to the meeting and said, right, that's it, let's attack Iraq. They had a preordained agenda to attack Iraq. It was nothing to do with the attack on the Twin Towers. And indeed, the war strengthened rather than weakened support for the mad ideas of Al-Qaeda, because people were so angry about it in the region. So that's a false argument. But the reason mostly stressed in the UK was weapons of mass destruction, as you know, or those of you that remember the arguments. We now know there were none. We also know what the intelligence said at the time now, because we've had the Buckley report and it's made clear what the intelligence said. The intelligence was very limited, you can go and read it and check it, and the Americans had less than us and relied on British intelligence. It said there was no nuclear, Saddam Hussein would probably like nuclear if he could get it, but he had no chance and no prospect. It, unless he got uh, uh, access to uranium and then could process it, so that was... They thought, the British intelligence that there was, that there was probably some laboratories with some chemical and biological work going on, and that it probably wasn't weaponised. I mean, you, would we have sent all those soldiers in if we really thought there was lots of chemical and biological weapons all over the place that was going to be flung at them? Of course not. And in fact, in my department, we asked Defence um, Intelligence for an assessment of whether it would go off and damage civilians in Iraq, and they said it almost certainly wasn't weaponised, almost certainly wouldn't be used, but if it was along with standoff around Baghdad, maybe some would go off, but there wasn't any remedy. But the whole reason the UN resolution to get the weapons inspectors back in was all on the basis that there were weapons of mass destruction, and that had to be resolved. Blick started off, his, his book is brilliant, I, I highly recommend it, believing there was WMD there. As he started to inspect, he became more, more convinced there was nothing. And he reported to the Security Council, if you remember, remember the famous occasion when he got rid of the ballistic missiles, and he said these were not toothpicks. And they started panicking and they started smearing Blick's because they couldn't bear for him to find that there was no WMD, because WMD was the excuse to go in rather than a real fear. So, obviously, it wasn't worth it to get rid of WMD, because there weren't any WMD there anyway. Was it because of the nature of the Saddam Hussein regime? Of course, during the Iran-Iraq war, when a million young Iranians and Iraqis died in that horrendous war from 80 to 88, the West was partly allied with Saddam Hussein and found him very useful for uh, their wishes to undermine Iran. So they didn't find him so objectionable then. 
I think the nature of the regime was, was a major part of the reason. Blair in his speeches would talk about Halabjur, and we've had that tonight, night, horrendous use of chemical weapons in Halabjur in 1988, and suffering of civilians. But of course, as UNICEF showed, sanctions from the UN was one of the major causes of the terrible conditions of children in particular. So I don't think it was humanitarian objection to Saddam Hussein, but he was a standout against Western domination in the Middle East. Syria, Iran, Iraq. So yes, bringing down the regime was wanted. But of course, in international law, regime change is not allowed as a reason for war. So, of course, he couldn't say openly, we're going to Iraq to get rid of Saddam Hussein, if that was the reason. So, in order to have a war, is it worth it to get rid of Saddam Hussein, which is the predominant argument of the speaker for the proposition, he had to lie to the world and the Security Council. And then the question is, was there another way to get rid of Saddam Hussein? When Blix found there was no WMD, then the sanctions should have been lifted. The country opened. Saddam Hussein could have been indicted as a war criminal and for crimes against humanity, as was Milosevic um, after all the trouble in Bosnia-Herzegovina and Kosovo and so on. And the people of Iraq could have been given the opportunity to get him to the international court. And in fact, that was discussed in the House of Commons. Anne Cluid, who supported the war, put that to Blair and he said he was considering it. So never think because Saddam Hussein's regime was evil, that the war was necessary. Yes, there were ways of thinking about and bringing about the end of Saddam Hussein, and everyone should benefit that. But of course, Britain isn't worried, or America isn't worried, to support equally vile regimes in Egypt before the Arab Spring, in Saudi Arabia currently, in Bahrain, and so on and so forth. And of course, just war theory and international law says if there's another way of doing it, war is not legal. So we didn't exhaust the possibilities of getting rid of Saddam Hussein in a legal way that would have been beneficial to the people of Iraq. So it wasn't worth it or justified it for, for that. Uh, President Bush said once that it was about spreading democracy in the Middle East. And funnily enough, he said, because democracies don't go to war, as America was blundering around in all its wars across the world. But clearly it didn't. It led to a very flawed democracy in Iraq and no democracy anywhere else. So it wasn't worth it for that. Or was the reason, as set out in the document you can all check online, the Project for the New American Century, which the, lots of the people who went into senior positions in the Bush regime signed up to before, saying, Saddam Hussein is unpopular. If we invade, we'll be welcome. We can have bases on the Gulf. We can move our troops from Saudi Arabia, where, where they're resented because it's uh, the land of the holy places of Islam, and we can dominate the Gulf. That's what it's really about. Use the attack on the Twin Towers as an excuse and think you'll be welcome. And it wasn't worth it for that because that outcome didn't come about. It was that one minute left. So it wasn't worth it. It was full of lies. It wasn't worth it for the Americans for one set of reasons, for the Iraqis for another set of reasons, and for Britain for a third. And we must learn the lessons that Britain has lied, humiliated itself, could be a much more useful player in the world. The Middle East continues to be really dangerous. The Palestinians are suffering the situation in Syria now, and that's destabilizing Lebanon. We owe it to learn the lessons and to make our country a more useful player to stand up for justice and peace and a fair chance for everyone. And if we had, we probably could have constrained Bush 
and brought down Saddam Hussein without such a war and all the destruction that came after it which was partly caused by the lies in the run-up to war that meant the preparations for afterwards were not properly made because there was so much deceit on the way to war. So, very important. Let's read and learn and understand and not allow this country to ever do such a thing again. Thank you. Okay, so our next speaker tonight is Dr. Ali Latif, who is the founder and co-chair of the Iraqi Prospect Organisation, or IPO. It was established in London in 2002, but now describes itself as an Iraq-based network of young men and women which seeks to educate young Iraqis about democratic values. Do we really have that short of memory? Do we own our memories only go back 10 years? What happened prior to those 10 years? We see this so-called outrage about the deaths of civilians. Where was everyone when we were campaigning against Saddam's regime more than 10 years ago? Those lonely days we were campaigning against him, killing hundreds of thousands of civilians. And then the US-led invasion came and suddenly there was uproar. Now I'm not here to debate the legal aspects or the geopolitical aspects of the Iraq war. I'm here to make a case that we should measure the worth of the Iraq war by its effect on the Iraqi people. It was many years under Saddam's brutal regime. He had killed his own people with chemical weapons. Sanctions, Western imposed, had killed hundreds of thousands as well. And hundreds of thousands lost their, lost their lives after the failed uprising in 1991. So the humanitarian case for regime change is clear. And to those who point to domestic disapproval against the Iraq war, at the same time deny the freedom rights of the Iraqi people to be free of Saddam's regime. Let's take the war. Point of information. Yes. No one's denying the rights of the Iraqi people to be free of Saddam Hussein. But the, what, 500,000, 600,000 people who are dead, they're free of Saddam Hussein and they're dead too. Okay, I'll, I'll get back to that. Thank you very much. Okay, so the war happened and I'm the first to criticise the US-led occupation. The lack of planning, the strategic errors that were made caused loss of life. But it's a mistake to blame all the violence and the chaos after the war pays solely on the war itself. Iraq as I said, it was coming from a dark place. The previous years of turmoil had caused the Iraqi people lots of intractable problems that they would have to face eventually. It was a young population, brutalized by years of war, sanctions, and sadistic totalitarian regime. Furthermore, there were clear ethno-sectarian divisions within the power structure. So the idea that any sort of peaceful transition towards democracy was possible is frankly absurd. And I'm glad people pointed out the Arab Spring. If we were going to make the case, as Claire did, uh, that Saddam was going to be held to account by an international criminal court, so why are we not doing the same in Syria? The Syrian people have risen up against their dictator and they're being brutally repressed. And that's the same thing Saddam would have done. He would have done it worse. He'd use he would think, no, wouldn't think twice about using chemical weapons against this population, and he did so. So the idea that a peaceful transition towards democracy was going to happen 
uh, in any other way, and that they, you know, all the problems that had built up under Saddam's regime would suddenly just melt away, is frankly, again, as I said, absurd. Another point to add, that there was a war, but there was a second war, a second war in Iraq, and this war was not counter to the occupation as is commonly, uh, commonly understood. This was a war, a terrorist attacks against civilians were not aimed at coalition forces. A recent Lancet paper said that civilians, 60 times as many civilians died in suicide bombings than did the troops. This is because Al-Qaeda and the reactionary elements did not want the emancipation of the Iraqi people. They bombed mosques, they bombed markets, they bombed recruitment centers. And this was not because of the occupation. They could have targeted the troops. No, they were targeting the population because they were targeting the emancipation of the Iraqi people. They were targeting the, the transformation of the political and social landscape in Iraq. And the Iraqi people paid their price. Al-Qaeda in Iraq came, as I said, as a result of the freedom of the Iraqi people. They could not see, specifically, they could not see the Shia rising and gaining their political rights. So they attacked them mercilessly. And the idea that you can, you can connect this to the war is frankly ludicrous, because this would have happened anyway. If there was any sort of peaceful transition to democracy, these reactionary elements would have stepped in. So please, the picture in Iraq is more complex than we think. Yes, there are political issues. There's a lot of political turmoil at the moment. The political system is dysfunctional. Corruption is hampering economic progress. And social divisions still run deep. Human rights abuses still occur. And it, but we have to understand where they're coming from. The Iraqi people came from a culture of brutality and violence. The idea that you know magically after you know after the invasion things would go back to some sort of ideal situation is I think quite absurd. But now the positive. Over the last few years, Iraq has been Iraqis have been in an unprecedented position to decide their own future. They have been able to exercise their freedoms such as ensuring their constitution was written by an elected, elected committee, they did that. They have to transform their parliament and local councils. They got rid of loads in the last election because they were just not performing. And they stopped the Americans from keeping their bases in Iraq. And that was through public pressure and Iraqi pressure. Okay, Iraqis are finding their voice regardless of what people think. I have had a chance to witness, witness this flourishing civil society. I see it around me every time I visit, people free to express themselves and better their local communities. Just look at the recent protests in Umbar. They're calling for reform and again, their voice is being heard because they can be heard. Imagine this taking place on the Saddam Hussein, that would be massive. The standard of living is incomparable. My mother-in-law remembers that her monthly salary under Saddam's regime was only enough to buy two dozen eggs. Two dozen eggs. Two dozen eggs, regardless of that. And now, contrast now, GDP has quadrupled. People are free to buy and look after their families. I'm amazed at the pace of change. The investment is pouring in, they are busting malls. People are free to express themselves without fear of reprisal. Yes, there are frustrations. There is cynicism with the politicians, but where else, where in the world isn't there cynicism with politicians? But there is also guided optimism. They know what they have emerged from, and they know the path is long, difficult, and uncertain. 
I'll pick a poll, taken in 2006-7, at the height of the inter-sort of civil war, whatever you want to call the conflict in Iraq. At the height of that violence, 77% of Iraqis polled in this survey said ousting Saddam was worth it. In all that chaos, Point of information. and in all that yes, uh, in, that was in 2006. In yes. September 2011, Zogby did a poll of Iraqis. They found only 42% of Iraqis said the war wasn't worth it. Only 30% said it was worth okay. it. So you're not speaking I, from I, this I, I, I can read an MDI poll in 
that's been proven by the Committee of Human Rights in the Iraqi government. Prime Minister Nurman responded like the late Gaddafi. He described the protesters, and this is a point to highlight for what kind of freedom we are living here. He described them as sheer bubbles, and their demands are stinking sectarian. Then on, the 20, on Friday, the 25th of January, Iraqi troops opened fire on the peaceful demonstrators in Fallujah. Seven people were killed and 44 injured. Ten years on, in liberated Iraq, peaceful protests are faced with intimidation and quoting human rights watch. Threats, violence, and arrest of protesters and journalists. The regime is, I'm quoting again, violating with impunity the rights of Iraqi's most vulnerable citizens, especially women and detainees. These violations, the broken justice, as called by human rights, are met with almost complete silence by the British government and the mainstream media, who were loud in denouncing the human rights violations under Saddam's regime. The war drummers are silent now. Around one million Iraqis killed. This is the cost of this war. 44% of the regime budget is spent on police, security, army, uh, special forces, and private security contractors to protect high officials and members of the parliament. Meantime, households endure 18 hours without electricity, 70% no clean water, 80% no functioning sanitation. In Baghdad, nearly two-thirds of the city's sewage still flows untreated to rivers and other waterways. Oxfam reported that 92%, and this is very important, 92% of Iraqi children have learning impediments. Kidnapping and assassination of professionals force whoever can to flee, with hundreds of journalists killed, hardly any independent foreign reporter is left inside Iraq. So we are left only with either the official statements or before that the occupation statements to give us the misinformation, to give us the misinformation. I don't accept the journalists. How many? As for civil society, and uh, he's one of them, Free invention, dozens of Iraqi US UK funded NGOs, particularly women and youth, were established in Washington and London. They were deemed necessary, I quote, to engage important voices which were missing from the debate, those of Iraqis with personal experience of Saddam Hussein's oppression. These NGOs play, and some of them still do, a significant role in mobilizing public and political support for the war. Colin Powell described them as, I quote, an important part of our combat team. The administrator of USAID working in Iraq, he described them as, I quote, an arm of the US government. When they moved to Iraq, these NGOs running workshops on democracy promotion and women empowerment, while keeping silent on daily killing, arrest, and torture, these NGOs were seen as representative of the occupation policy rather than Iraqis, thus damaging 
the possibilities for the much needed work by genuine grassroots organizations. As for human rights, only days after the liberation, the degrading treatment of Iraqis had resumed in earnest, like what is previously. On April the 25th, 2003, U.S. soldiers raided four naked youths in the streets of Baghdad. One of the four, 20-year-old Ziad, said that the only thing he wanted in his life to do was to find a grenade and throw it at the American soldiers who humiliated him and all other ones in the city. This was an early sign of future abuses yet to follow and a clear indication of the occupier's racist policy and the growing hatred of the occupation. Some Iraqis who initially believed in the U.S. liberation and the declared aims of establishing democracy and human rights soon began to lose hope. Photos and testimonies of detainees released from Al-Qaeda and other named and unnamed persons showed a totally different picture from what they had hoped for. U.S and British troops were actually raping women and sodomizing men and children. UK detention practices between 2003 and 2008, there are hundreds of cases now in high court in Britain, some of them were declared a few days ago, including beatings, sleep deprivation, and sexual mutilation, some involving women and children. In one case, I'm quoting, Shiner, the solicitor, the barrister, a 62-year-old grandmother, she's my age, who is led away alive, she's seen by her husband and her son alive, then found a few hours later in a British body bag, very much dead, with signs of torture. The irony is, these same forces train Iraqi forces on human rights, Abuses often occurred under the supervision of U.S. commanders who are unwilling to intervene and are described by the Washington Post as, I quote, of all the bloodshed in Iraq, none may be more disturbing than the campaign of torture and murder being conducted by the U.S. trained government police forces. I mean, if your, if your case against the war is somehow that there was a concerted campaign of rape and torture by coalition troops. I mean, you're living on another planet. We put our, our, our soldiers in prison uh, who committed any crime of that nature. Saddam Hussein promoted them to be generals. That's the difference. No, and I can't make that decision. Absolutely. Listen, I'm talking about Not any country that you can go and debate and do whatever you like. <laughs> you can have much, much better than the Bible than Saddam's regime. You excelled. British and the US occupation excelled. They were very actually. I can really give you a list of how creative you were and compare. If there is a competition between the British, Americans, and Saddam, you will be our now. Detainees in the aftermath of Orgrave were handed over to Iraqis to be tortured with occupation troops 
blame no responsibility. Under the current al-Da'wah party regime led by Prime Minister Al-Maliki, gender equality has indeed been achieved. Rape is no more targeting just women. Documented cases by Amnesty International and other international human rights organizations draws very disturbing picture about men confessing terrorist acts and unimaginable crimes for the fear of being raped or actually raped. A detained imam of a mosque told a delegation of Iraqi MPs they forced us to talk by raping us. Instead of putting an end to horrifying acts of violence, occupation has paved the way for its continuity. A crime designed to couple collective humiliation with intimidation and terror. Human rights became meaningless and the rule of international law is a sheer mockery. What we should really ask about is, is it worth it? Well, the question is really, it has to be. When we are going to put people responsible about these crimes and accountable? Thank you very much. Saddam Hussein had already been using 
mustard gas, and other chemical weapons on the battlefront against the Iranians along the Shah Alam and other areas, bombed the village of Halabja and other places as well, in pursuance of what became later known as the Anfar campaign, a campaign recognised as anti-Kurdish genocide by two Nordic governments just this week, by Norway and by Sweden, it's a campaign of genocide. And we saw 5,000 civilians lying dead in the streets of Malaysia. Now, at this point, I didn't think to myself, hmm, uh, uh, isn't it, uh, isn't it a shame they're not doing more about this? I was part of the campaign to try and do something about Saddam Hussein. It was an organization with a campaign against repression and dictatorship in Iraq, which actually was run from a basement on the top of the same house that my, that, uh, that my mother lived in. As that war finished in 1988, um, with Iran. Within a year and a half, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait because he was now bankrupt from the war that he'd been fighting against Iran. Um, as a consequence of that, the United Nations decided and agreed the coalition set to get, uh, was put together and it forced Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. At that point, President Bush said to the southern Iraqis, This is now the moment at which you can rise up against Saddam Hussein and gave them no material support or help in doing so. The consequence was a massive anti-Shia campaign by Saddam Hussein, which killed thousands and thousands and thousands of Shia Muslims down in the south. And what you've got to try and remember when you deal with Saddam Hussein is you're not dealing with Solomon Mubarak. Mubarak was a man and an authoritarian man, but there are scales and scales of authoritarianism, and Saddam Hussein was right down the pole this was a person whose family took personal pleasure in personal killings and in getting rid of their rivals. These were the people who would take over the Iraqi football team and execute people who they thought didn't perform correctly. So this is not some kind of strange little, you know, rather difficult, maybe kind of George Bush, but with, the, with, with nasty tendencies, etc. This is right off the scale. And I saw all this, and I perceived it all. When the United Nations imposed sanctions on Saddam Hussein after Kuwait, and when they tried to send the weapons inspectors in, in, and then shut down, and then in again, and discovered they had a nuclear program and a chemical weapons program, which he was trying to work, which he was trying to hide, I thought to myself, well, how are we ever going to get to a situation whereby we can deprive or we can assist Iraqi Democrats and others in getting rid of a man like this? And the answer was, there appeared to be no way. We went through the sanctions that we talked about, uh, which affected Iraqi children. Why did they affect Iraqi children? Because that's the way in which Saddam Hussein and his government operated, so that they had a major propaganda uh, uh, campaign that they, could, that they could run. Finally, after 9-11, it was decided by George Bush that actually he would see the end of Saddam Hussein. Something like they had a problem, which was, do we oppose this? and say, I don't want Saddam Hussein removed by you by force, but I would like to imagine some other strange way in which automatically Saddam Hussein is going to disappear, hand himself in to the International Criminal Court for Christ's sake. I mean, this is Saddam Hussein we're talking about, and that is actually, incidentally, the alternative that you have been posed with, or am I going to say, well, if we're going to get rid of him, then good, but let's try and make it as good as we possibly could have been. And that's the way I went for it. Incidentally, when we talk about the weapons of mass destruction and so on, and the stupidity of it, I just want to read this to you. Perhaps the real threat this person wrote in 2003 
from bringing her up today, comes from covert use of such weapons against troops, doesn't come from covert use against work troops or by terrorists against civilian targets worldwide. The link with Al-Qaeda is disputed, but in any case, not a principal terroristic concern. Iraq has long trained and supported terrorist activities and is quite capable of initiating such activity using its security services. The long-term threat, however, remains Iraq's development to military maturity and weapons of mass destruction, something only regime change will avert. Does anyone want to tell me who wrote that? Somebody tell me who wrote that. Dr. David Kelly wrote that in the March of 2003, the man who's commonly regarded as the anti-war martyr. David, points of information. Of course. Given we're playing the quote game, in April 2003 you wrote, if nothing is ever, if no weapons are eventually found, I as a supporter of the war will never believe anything that I'm ever told by our government. Will that have the US ever again? Those weapons had better be there. They probably are. Mm -hmm. Reluctant to take further action 
But the question is whether in 10 years' time we shouldn't be here debating this. Syria not intervening, was it worth it? Friends, firstly, I must quibble with the how this debate has been framed. The implication one could derive from the question, was it worth it, is that we all agree that the aims of the war were noble and good, and that we part company only on the cost of his execution. But I opposed all aspects of this war, its motives, its methods, and its disastrous consequences. Consequences which were far worse than those of us who marched nearly a decade ago on that freezing cold February afternoon than we actually anticipated. Now the weapons of mass destruction we know were the pretext. We know now of course they did not exist and that Iraq had been effectively disarmed. Now that quote of David Aronovich of never trusting the political establishment again was a damning quote. But he could have spared, if you like, his lack of faith in the political establishment if he'd listened to Scott Ritter, the former UN Chief Weapons Inspector, a self-professed Republican who voted for George W. Bush. He said in 2002 that since 1998, Iraq has been fundamentally disarmed. Or you could have listened to Robin Cook, who of course had been party to multiple intelligence reports on Iraq, and he warned in his resignation speech that Iraq probably has no weapons of mass destruction in the commonly understood sense of the term. Nor do I believe the war was legal. The conclusion of Kofi Annan, the former UN Secretary General and protector of the UN Charter, he declared in 2004 okay, it was illegal. Can I, can I make a, ask a question? Okay, one, yeah, get one, so make it good. What about the findings of the Iraq Survey Group? Do you just dismiss that? What, the Iraq, well, what do you mean of the Iraq Survey Group? I read it out. It might have been there were no weapons of mass destruction found in Iraq, so we know the answer to that point. Finally, uh, Sir Michael Wood, he was former Chief Legal Advisor to the Foreign Office, who recently declared the invasion to be contrary to international law. Nor do I believe it was motivated by humanitarian considerations, not least because of the West's appalling record of supporting brutal dictatorships the world over, which continues to this very day, from Saudi Arabia to Kazakhstan. Tony Blair, who spoke passionately about Saddam's tyranny, now being paid £8 million a year to advise the dictatorship in Kazakhstan. The CIA helped the Ba'athists come to power in 1963. They even provided lists of communists who were promptly slaughtered. The West, as we've spoken about, helped arm and support Iraq in its war with Iran. When the anti-war MP, Jeremy Corbyn, stood up in Parliament in 1988 to denounce the Conservative government for continuing to support Saddam Hussein after the gassing of Halabja, he was a lonely and courageous voice. Many of those who used the suffering of the Kurds 15 years later to help support a pretext for Iraq were notable by their silence. Now in terms of the consequences, now let's start with the human cost, and it is a grubby and sordid business when we start debating how big a pile of bodies is. But let's go through, and David, I'm sorry to use some of your quotes, 
but I'm afraid it is a question of judgment. And it was a question of judgment, not just of yourself, but of others at the time who were wrong on every single count. Now you said in August 2003, after the occupation had begun, you said there had been very few suicide attacks, not the thousands confidently anticipated by George Galloway, among others. Now we know between 2003 and 2010 alone, over 12,000 civilians were killed by suicide bombings, over a thousand of them, as Iraq was turned into a playground of Al-Qaeda, as inspired groups of Al-Qaeda and other fundamentalist groups who did not exist in the country before, descended there, swarmed on the country following the occupation. You also wrote, there has been no civil war or anything resembling its early stages. Kurds, Shia, Sunni and Marsh Arabs have not performed the Balkan sword dance that some grimly predicted for them. You added quite the opposite. You also said if it descends into long-term chaos and civil war, then just about everything they said, the anti-war movement, will turn out to have been right. And so it did, David. And so we were right. Not that anyone can derive any pleasure in this room from the sickening tide of blood and chaos that was led to Very quickly. Point of information. Is Iraq in a state of civil war now? It was in, in a state of civil war for years after you wrote no, that no, quote. No, 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 no. Long-term is, is Iraq. I, move on, I will move on to the Iraq. I will move on. I will move on to yes Iraq. Or no. is it, yes or no. I've answered the question. No, no. Yes years no. after is that it, quote, years after that quote, it descended into chaos. Last year, again, thousands of people died in violence. I will come on to that. You wrote, uh, firstly, we have a sectarian conflict, which was one of the bloodiest of our time in Iraq, and that is undeniable. You wrote hundreds of thousands have not died, or even scores of thousands, or even one score. There has not been a massive humanitarian crisis. There does not seem yet to have been a widespread increase in terrorism, nor a consequent Arab insurgency. It is difficult to see how you could have been more wrong. Now, because the occupying forces refused to count the fatalities that resulted from that invasion and occupation, it is impossible to have accurate figures. But we know the Iraq Family Health Survey, a project undertaken by Iraqi government agencies, estimate there were over 150,000 violent deaths in the first three years of the war alone. The Iraq body count it only relies on media reports, official NGO and government reports. They estimated that at least over 172,000 violent deaths and other estimates range up to a million. This violence is not subsiding. It surged again in 2012, which last Year, which was one of the most violent years on record recently. Now, you doubted any humanitarian crisis would take place. By July 2007, over 4.2 million Iraqis... Uh, no, you'll come on to it at the end. Over 4.2 million Iraqis were displaced. 2 million within Iraq, 2.2 million in neighbouring countries. Now, I want to give you an example, a specific example of the horrors that befell Iraq following the occupation. And I want to talk quickly about Fallujah, the city of Fallujah. Now after the war ended, the first stage of the war ended, after the occupation, US soldiers fired on an unarmed crowd protesting about the occupation of a local school. 17 were killed. Huge anti-occupation sentiment fled. The US lost control of the city. They led an initial onslaught in April 2004. They killed hundreds of Iraqi civilians. 
The leading Iraqi politician Adnan Pachachi described that operation as unacceptable and illegal. Having failed to reconquer the city, the US troops waited till Bush was re-elected, stormed the city again on the 7th of November 2008, ending in the deaths of up to, sorry, 2004, ending in the deaths of up to 1,500 people. Up to one in five buildings in that city were destroyed. White phosphorus was used, which literally burns the skin off bodies, as was depleted uranium, which has led to a massive surge in infant abnormalities and cancer. Al Jazeera broadcast pictures of decapitated infants and burned babies. If these sorts of atrocities were committed by an anti-Western dictatorship, the sound of self-righteous fury from those who supported the Iraq war would have been absolutely deafening. But David, again, when you were asked about this operation, this specific operation on Radio 4's Any Question in 2004, you said it was almost certainly a grim necessity. Now, again, another quote of yours, which is to answer your final point. If Iraq had become anything like a democratic and pluralist state, you said, then just about everything the opponents of intervention predicted will have turned out to be wrong. But by 2005, Ayad Alawi, who had been installed originally as Prime Minister of Iraq, he was a former CIA agent, he said people are doing the same as in Saddam's time and worse. It's an appropriate comparison, he said. People are remembering the days of Saddam Hussein. These were the precise things we fought at Saddam and were seeing the same things. From October 2011, thousands of political opponents were rounded up by security forces directly loyal to the Prime Minister. A possible coup was used as a pretext dismissed by one Western diplomat as paranoia its fantasy land. According to Human Rights Watch, who are no lefties, I should argue, um, they said after decades of dictatorship, occupation and terrorism, the Iraqi people today have a government that is slipping further into authoritarianism and doing little to make them safer. Draconian measures against opposition politicians, detainees, demonstrators and journalists effectively squeezing the space for independent civil society and political freedoms in Iraq. Iraq is 150th, 150th out of 179 countries in the World Freedom Index. It's worse than Russia or Oman. UNHCR said it's one of the world's most dangerous places for journalists. According to the US government-funded Freedom House, with seven being the worst possible score, Iraq scores six for civil liberties and six for political rights. The fact is this with the, opposite, with the, with the proponents, if you like, of the war. They were wrong about weapons of mass destruction. They were wrong about the human cost. They were wrong about Iraq becoming a flourishing democracy. Little wonder the zombie poll, which many refer to, showed that only 30% of Iraqis say they're better off, 42% worse off than Saddam Hussein, 23% just as bad. Now, just to finish off, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of Iraqis died. Nearly 4,500 US soldiers, 179 UK soldiers, and hundreds of thousands injured and maimed for what? to disarm a country that had already been disarmed, to establish yet another increasingly authoritarian and violent regime. Ten years on, friends, I say this. We have to learn the lessons, and above all, make sure this never happens again.
a former member of the extremist group, the Books My own experience of the Iraq War, I think, leads me to be arguing on this side of the debate in quite peculiar circumstances. In 2003, I was widely opposed to everything that was taking place. I marched also against the war. I cheered when Robert Cook resigned. I waited for you, Feshaw, to resign. Belatedly, the judgment then is now laughing. And I remember watching very vividly as the first wave of shock and war started in Iraq. I remember being consumed with the anger that many of you rightly feel today. And then in 2005, when Iraqis for the first time in a generation had the opportunity to go and vote, provisions were made for them here, with polling stations in London and polling stations in Manchester, to give Iraqis an opportunity to experience something that we all take for granted. And I went to demonstrate again telling them, arrogantly, that they didn't know what was in their own best interest. We told them that to vote was to legitimize a colonial occupation of their country. Hadn't spoken to any Iraqis at this point. Hadn't bothered to find out what they thought. But they let us know. Put it bluntly, they kicked our ass. They fought us. The police have to come in and break up scuffles outside these polling stations. Why? Because here were a bunch of people who hadn't lived in Iraq, who hadn't experienced the tyranny of Saddam, telling the Iraqis themselves. And that's when I began to question just where we were coming from with relation to this. So this invites the question, really, when we're asking, was it worth it? Well, worth it to whom? And worth it for whom? Of course, it goes without saying great many people lost their lives in this conflict. And for them, that question may seem grossly insulting. A great many people also lost their lives in the decades of tyranny under Saddam. And for them, I would argue that this question would be answered very differently. Go and talk to the Kurds, who now enjoy great freedoms and stability in Iraq. And I think you'd find an answer from them that would surprise you. Look at the Shia, who were persecuted, and not just killed, but marginalized from the position that they had been vital contributors to Iraq society, marginalized, pushed to the country. Now, I appreciate the other side of this debate. I think idealism in politics is a good thing. It should give you something to aspire to. The unfortunate reality is the idealism coming from this side, as David was saying quite rightly, it's based on myth, it's based on a magic wand. What do we expect the Saddam Hussein to do? You know, he makes the point that he's called the rule of law. But how do we enforce the numerous violations that Saddam Hussein did over the course of 10 years after, not the invasion of Kuwait, but the annexation of Kuwait? That is to say, the destruction of the country's absorption into his own territory, the belief that it has no longer the right to exist, unprecedented in modern diplomatic history. So that utopia and that idealism, I don't feel works. It's not to say that we are hungry for war, or that we think it's a good thing, 
But that practicability needs to be understood here. Now, you might well say, well, what about smart essentials? That's clear suggestion. What about wiser engagement? Well, we've kind of seen the fruits of some of that, haven't we? One need only think back to two years of fawning coverage in Vanity Fair of the newly reforming and liberalizing facade regime. One need only consider how Saif al-Islam Gaddafi was paraded around British universities because of his great work in democratizing Libya and edging it towards greater liberalization. The only two regimes in the Arab Spring to have gone out actively and slaughtered their people on an unprecedented scale. So we need to understand that this idea that Saddam will suddenly wake up one morning and relinquish power or begin to pull back from where he was is a fallacy. This debate in some respects, and maybe maybe goodness to bring us back in the 20 years or 30 years to look at it again, I think comes too soon. Imagine 1953 after the Korean War. You have a ravaged peninsula, a divided people, an official military body count somewhere between 10 and 12 times what we saw in Iraq. Let's set aside the civilians. And a deadlocked outcome with no clear or decisive victory either way. Six decades on, if you were a Korean, which side of that peninsula do you want to live in? And make no mistake, had it not been to the West, to the United States in particular, Britain, the North would have devoured the entire peninsula. Today, South Korea goes without saying, it's very stable. But, pull back. We wouldn't have been saying this in 1953. So in many respects, it's far too soon to comment on what has taken place in Iraq. Yes, it is going through a great convulsion. Yes, human rights abuses still exist. Yes, the infrastructure is devastated. But you know, the arbitrary regime under which Saddam Hussein lived, replacing that means I don't have electricity 24 hours a day, I think it's a small cost. And here's the point. Consider now the fact that yes, the intervention, if you take the Korean example, is one idea, but to intervene in these scenarios is ultimately, you can't predict or guarantee the outcome. What you can do is to provide hope. But I can tell you, if we left Saddam Hussein in place, there was no hope. Today, look at the Middle East. Where is, despite the convulsions, the greatest hope coming from at this moment? The contours of power are being recast. Yes, we've seen the downfall of tyrants across the entire region. But you tell me, do you think Egypt, with the Muslim Brotherhood attempting to recreate Kabul in Cairo to impose a caliphate upon the Nile, in 20 years is going to be the great hope for the region? Is Saudi Arabia the great hope for the region, which sent its troops into Bahrain to kill unarmed protesters? Yemen? Libya, where the government has no authority beyond the capital city. Tunisia, where the Anathema party now rules, another Islamist party. Syria. Syria will still be convulsing in the end of the years from the brutality of the Shah Qasem. 
Sure, yeah. uh, point of information. Sure. Uh, I know I defer to your knowledge of Islamism over mine, and you're going around and giving us a good tour of the region. You are aware, of course, that the Iraqi government is consists of the Dawah party, which is considered an Islamist party, which is an ally of Iran, and has been backing Bashar al-Assad, the dictator you've been condemning for the last 10 minutes. The Maliki government is a supporter of the Assad government. And I think a disappointing one on your part, really, because it's an inversion of what's really taking place. Assad is being directly supported by the Iranians, a regime that you've defended consistently, you must have said. The Russians and the... Uh, point of information, I don't think I've ever consistently defended this. So I think you should withdraw that, unless you've got a quote you can read. I at least brought some quotes to the debate. I understand uh, your background, but I, I consistently follow. And with the protest, very simply, that have taken place in Iraq, gone on since 2011 until the present day. Sunni Muslims complaining, you mentioned terrorism laws, they've been complaining about those things. The Shia complaining, the Kurds complaining. Has there been a systematic breakdown? Has there been a systematic breakdown in brutality against the protesters that we've seen in other parts of the Middle East? No. So I think, really, we should get back to the basis of this question. It is a good thing that Saddam Hussein has gone. And we shouldn't be ashamed to say that. It's a good thing that Iraq was saved for more years under him. And it's a good thing that Iraq was further saved again from the terrorists that attempted to move in and denied Iraq its future. Iraq is not perfect today. Iraq will not be perfect tomorrow. But what Iraq has over and above any institutional partners is hope. And I think that is a very important thing. Thank you. Let me clear it up for any moron with lingering doubts. It's worse, it's over, you lost. You lost every single family whose home your soldiers violated. You lost every sane, red-blooded Iraqi when the Abu Ghraib pictures came out. You lost when you brought murderers, looters, gangsters and militia heads to power. You lost the respect and reputation you once had. You lost more than 3,000 troops. You lost, that is what you lost. I hope at least the oil was worth it. Those are the words of the acclaimed Iraqi blogger known only by the pseudonym Riverbend. From February 2007, just a few months later, the tsunami of violence that our war, sorry, their war unleashed on her country forced her to leave her beloved Iraq and become a refugee. Now, it's my job tonight to remind you all, once and for all, of why what George W. Bush and David tonight famously called a catastrophic success, that is the invasion and occupation of Iraq, was nothing of the sort and was not worth I've just started, David, don't interrupt. No, no, I've just started. You pointed at the question. Oh, sorry, go on. you just said, no, I didn't call the occupation a catastrophic success. I called the invasion. Fine, fine. Withdraw it. There's plenty of other embarrassing quotes for you to defend. And have I been there, by the way? Let's just deal with this point very quickly. Ali asked me, have I been there? No, I haven't been there. I mean, uh, a family friend of mine was pulled off a bus and shot and killed to death. I'm not going to use that in the argument, because I think the argument is spurious. If you could only criticise a country because you've gone there, I assume you think North Korea is a wonderful place, because I'm assuming you haven't gone there. But first, having knocked you, let me, let me just, actually, let me just withdraw my 
my comments by David Valley. Let me start from scratch. Let me thank everyone coming tonight, and let me thank especially our pro-war quartet here. We saw the odds are stacked against them, so I'm full of admiration for coming tonight. As one of the organisers of this debate, I approached more than 60, 60, 60 hawks, well-known hawks in, the, in politics, uh, in the media, in diplomacy, in the military, inviting them to participate in this debate, only to be turned down again and again. A lot of hair was being washed tonight. Most British supporters of the war, I turned out, don't seem to want to defend it anymore. They've worked out that there's not much to defend about the bloody fiasco that is Iraq. So in that sense, you have to admire these four guys for having the guts to turn up and defend the war. And I say hats off to them. At the same time, I am bewildered, astonished, that there are now, ten years on, still four informed, intelligent, sentient beings who can come here knowing what we know, seeing what we've seen, and say that this war, with all its lives lost, all its torture, all its bloodshed, all its chaos, was worth it, was right, was justifiable, in order to rid the world of the monster that was Saddam Hussein. Let's be very clear. Every single one of the arguments, every single one of the arguments that the Hawks advanced in favour of the war a decade ago, turned out to be completely hollow, utterly discredited, false, disingenuous, nonsensical. We're going in to get rid of WMDs, they said. They claimed over and over again, but there were none. None that could produce a mushroom cloud. None that could be deployed within 45 minutes of an order to do so. None that could hit Cyprus or even London, as Bernard's party leader so ludicrously claimed back in September 2002. And Bernard was very excited about the Iraq Survey Group report. The Iraq Survey Group found, and I quote, weapons of mass destruction related program activities. Not WMDs, not WMD programs, but WMD program-related activity. I wonder if they can be deployed in 45 minutes of an order to do so. What else did they say? We're going in to make the world a safer place. To counter the threat from terrorism. And of course, there were no links between Iraq and Al-Qaeda, between secular Saddam and Islamist Osama. In fact, the invasion of Iraq was the greatest, best recruiting sergeant that Muslim extremists could ever have dreamed or prayed of. It led thousands of young men to be radicalised, to be fanaticised, from the Middle East to the Midlands. Now there are those, Ali among them, a certain Permatan former Prime Minister, who have gone through all sorts of intellectual contortions to try and deny this link. But don't listen to me, or don't listen to people here. Listen to that raving far-left conspiracy theorist, Dave Eliza Manning Buller, former head of MI5, who said that whatever the merits of putting an end to Saddam Hussein, the war was also a distraction from the pursuit of Al-Qaeda. It increased the terrorist threat. Her words, not mine. What else? We're going in to protect Iraqi human rights, they said, to defend Iraqis from evil Ba'athists. But what did their intervention, their humanitarian intervention, produce? The brutal siege and bombardment of Fallujah, where homes were levelled, which was reduced to rubble. The Abu Ghraib torture scandal, the cold-blooded massacres at Haditha and Mehmudiyah. At one stage, the UN Special Investigator revealed that torture under the, under the occupiers and under the new government had reached a level where it was worse even than under Saddam Hussein, according to the UN Investigator. Now that is an achievement to be proud of. We're going to build a beacon of democracy that will transform the Middle East, they said. We're going to end decades of dictatorship in Iraq. But what's the democratic government in Baghdad being up to? Haifa spoke about some of the human rights abuses, the illiberalism, the corruption. 
Let me just add, Dr. Toby Dodge, who is one of Britain's leading experts on Iraq, has just written a new book called Iraq from War to a New Authoritarianism. He says Prime Minister Maliki, ally of Bashar al-Assad, is heading towards, quote, an incredibly dangerous dictatorship. So much for a liberal democracy on the banks of the Tigris. In fact, Foreign Policy magazine ranks Iraq as one of the top ten most failed states in the world. Bravo. Bravo. What else? We're going to make the Middle East a more peaceful, orderly and stable place. The last time I checked, we empowered Iran, which was the real victor there, which, which uh, our friend Shiraz is so upset about. We empowered Iran. His war empowered Iran in the Middle East. Uh, we created the largest refugee crisis since the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians in 1948. 2.2 million Iraqis fled their homes. 1.2 million Iraqis internally displaced. That's what we created. Oh, and we also fueled a fanatical sectarianism in the Muslim world, but with Sunni and Shia communities turning on one another, with violence never seen in, in my lifetime, certainly egged on by men like Paul Bremen. Egged, please. Did the Sunni Shia conflict start? It didn't start. It didn't start, of course, but it was institutionalized by a man named Paul Bremer, who was the US Viceroy in Iraq and was in town this week. Ladies and gentlemen, we left Iraq with our tail between our legs, but we should never have been there in the first place. The invasion of Iraq was an unrivaled and historic political, military and strategic failure, but above all else, it was a moral abomination. Was it worth it is the question tonight. Was it worth the 4,488 US troops who were killed or the 32,000 US troops who were wounded, maimed, injured, disabled? Was it worth 179 British troops killed and 3,500 British troops wounded? Was it worth the trillion plus dollars that US and UK taxpayers spent on it? Which could have been used, say, I don't know, to end all starvation, malnutrition in the sub-Saharan Africa, or to provide clean drinking water to the world's poorest people for the next hundred years. Was it worth, go on, finish it now. Was it worth, no thanks, David. Was it, go on, go on then. <laughs> Quickly, time's running, quick, quick. Whose wording was the motion? Whose wording was the motion? The Huffington Post. Did you not like the motion? You shouldn't have turned no, up, David. Was it worth? Was it? And you, and you stood and told us it was worth it. Sorry, David. David, you seem to think the point of the motion is to break the rule. Yes and no question. It's your word. It's your word, and you came along and agreed to it. You shouldn't have come along and agreed to it. You protected. Was it worth? Was it worth? Was it? Okay, David. Let me ask you this: Was it worth it? Yes or no? You like yes or no question? The war was it worth it? Yes or no? Well, that's fine, I'll take your vote as well. Look, let me finish. 
one minute to go. The issue is this. Look, Halabja was a huge crime. Halabja was a huge crime. But Halabja was not a crime that we were directly responsible for. We were indirectly responsible for it. But what we were directly responsible for are the tens of thousands of people who have lost their lives over the past decade in Iran. Hundreds of thousands of people who have lost their lives who have been tortured, killed, made, dismembered. They're not the people who govern, you know, you govern Gallup. Don't go to poll them on whether the war was a good thing or a bad thing because they're dead. So if you ask me, is the war worth it? And I'm glad to have a new ally on that. The answer has to be, of course, no, it wasn't. Okay, let's rephrase the question. Was the war the right thing to do? No. Was the war just? No. I'm glad David and I found some division again. You've heard the famous saying of the French diplomat Talleyrand, who said about a murder by Napoleon. He said famously, it was worse than a crime, it was a blunder. The thing about Iraq, ladies and gentlemen, is the exact reverse. It was worse than a blunder. It was a crime. And so I urge you all to vote against this motion tonight, because it's times like this when we can send a message to people who line us into an illegal, immoral, unnecessary, unprovoked, unjust, bloody, brutal war of aggression that, yes, killed Saddam Hussein, but also killed hundreds of thousands of innocent Iraqis in the process. Ladies and gentlemen, I beg to vote. Today 
is better off than it would have been had Saddam Hussein remained in, in power for another 10 years. And the thousands, hundreds of thousands of people he killed, he would have carried on killing. Uh, and, and that's the question we need to ask today, whether the world is a safer place as a result of this removal. And it is.
you know, disease levels were falling down. But that, to be honest, the red list that was imposed by the sanctions had banned products that were needed, and they restricted Iraq from exporting oil. 95% of the oil is used to be exported to raise revenue. If you're, for example, if you have no income whatsoever, you're not able to buy the necessities that you need every day. So that's what they did during the sanctions. It was 13 years, but the sanctions, I tell you, they destroyed the population. Even now, okay, you know, a lot of people have jobs now, you know, they've got a nice car, they got some form of accommodation, but the religious police are out there to destroy the nation. What they're trying to do is split everything, they put roadblocks everywhere, there's security checkpoints in every neighborhood. You start to question where these bombs are coming from. Because wherever you go, there are checkpoints. And the G4S company, they have security they have security Thank you very much. Everyone wants to make a It's almost been airbrushed entirely out of this debate. According to UNICEF in the 1990s, half a million Iraqi children died as a direct result of sanctions. And when that was talked to Madeleine Albright, who's then US ambassador uh, to the UN, she's challenged about that thing and she said this We think the price is worth it. Now, that is, a, that is absolutely the case, that is exactly what she said. She tried to retract it later, but we can't divorce when we're talking about what happened to Iraq, those sanctions are bloody ready. Dr. Alex, Totally agree with, again, the points about the hypocrisy and supporting tyranny. Totally agree with the point about sanctions being a war crime as well, and it killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis. However, there was a chance to remove the sanctions regime and to remove the tyrannical ruler, and what does the population do? No, they don't support that. They go against it, to the detriment of the Iraqi people. I'm, not, I'm, I'm really confused. Yes, you are. Sorry, sorry. That was, a, that was a bit flip. My memory of the sanctions on Iraq, particularly those in the late 90s, was that it was a government of which you were a part and for which you voted for those sanctions, which imposed those sanctions. And the reason for those sanctions was that they were part of the UN regime, which was trying to keep Saddam Hussein in place because he had not fulfilled the uh, resolutions of the United Nations before that, which is why your government and you correctly argued for those sanctions. Then, in order, in order to try and mitigate them, incidentally, the American ambassador did not say that about it being a price worth paying in those terms at all. The quote, of course, is a very much longer quote. If you don't believe me, I challenge those of you with an iPad to look it up, find a longer quote, and then by the end of the evening we can quote it back. Like a lot of things in this debate, it is likely casualty statistics and just about everything else. It is one of the great mythologies that has worked its way into this debate for the, past, for, the, for, for the last decade. But the one thing you cannot do, Claire, is wash your hands on the sanctions. The fact is that the sanctions from, from the uh, war after the invasion of Kuwait, when we got into power, there was a review of those sanctions because of the UNICEF figures. So it's horrendous levels of suffering, and particularly of children. And we were moving, and someone referred to it in their speech on your side, to a smart, smarter sanctions regime targeting the elite of the regime and stopping that kind of harm. And I was involved in that process. We inherited the sanctions, there wasn't a vote. And who did you, and who did you say was responsible for the deaths as a result of the sanctions? You and Robin Cook both. Who did you say bore the responsibility? I'll find the quote. I think all, the all sides... You said Saddam Hussein did. No, but excuse me. Everyone, the, 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 
Weapons inspectors were there, the spies were put in with the weapons inspectors, the whole thing was degraded and then the sanctions went on and on and on. We needed to make a change, we were trying to move a different kind of sanctions regime and we looked at the possibilities of Saddam Hussein being sent off as a war criminal as alternative ways of dealing with the regime. Then along came the attack on the Twin Towers, the determination to go for Iraq and there was a determination to go straight to war for I think the reasons set out in the project for the new American I agree government. with you about the sanctions then and I agree with you about the sanctions now. You're the one who disagrees with your earlier self. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. 
of Iraq is currently caused by uh, either the U.S. airstrikes, and that is documented by WikiLeaks, if you look at them, and reported by them as well, caused by bombers, suicide bombers, of course, caused by many other factors, even some of the killing inside Iraq. But you have to remember very well, Iraq did not have any Al-Qaeda. We did not have any before the occupation. Occupation fed extremism, fed people to fight in various ways. And some of them, actually suicide bombers, were following, following cases of women suicide bombers. One of them was imprisoned and raped, and she walked out of prison and she blew herself up. I'm not justifying this, but I'm telling you, we have to understand what's happening. Thank you. Wait, 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 been up to what the Americans have done. I thought that your guardian they all tell us very eloquently about what the Brits and the Americans are up to, but nowhere will we find a condemnation of Al Qaeda. And instead, you should be honest of responsibility to the West, saying that they were the result of the occupation. Let's say they were. Let's say they were. But you. What do you mean? Let's say they were. They were. It's a fact. Let's negate. <laughs> you negate the fact that they. Let's say they were. They were. The destabilisation that occurred in Iraq. They were the ones who started that sectarian conflict in the most gross form. Agreed. It focuses the mind somewhat when you consider the fact that Ayman al-Zawahiri wrote to Abu Musab al-Zaghali to say, you're overdoing it. You're going a little too crazy. When the leader of al-Qaeda tells you you're an extremist, I think you should take that seriously. Okay, what question the back, please? Yeah, uh, my name is Chesty. I'm a film producer and director. Uh, Finish a documentary called War Battles.com. Please check it out. Friendly, <laughs> <laughs> protesters for 10 years in London. Yeah, we're talking about tyranny and, you know, tyrants. But well, I think we have tyrants in this country as well. Because over a million people protest against everywhere. All the body, every single politician even coughed. Anyway, and up to now, there's good democracy outside Parliament Square because of the protests against the Iraq war. If you are going to have to protest outside Parliament Square, I'll be locked up. Okay? So, we talk about tyranny, sanctions. Let me tell you about sanctions. Sanctions are to protect the reserves of the nation before they attack it. So their children die, and also they don't have weapons to defend themselves. Iran is the next reserve. That's why it's called sanctions right now, because next year we're going to attack it and get their boy. Okay, let me tell you a piece of history, okay? The imperialism is going on now, and it's been going on for ages. Okay, I'm from Sierra Leone, I work in Sierra Leone, one of the richest countries in West Africa with diamond and gold. We have the largest number of deposits in West Africa at the moment, and the third largest. But it's the poorest and most illiterate nation in the world. And one time in 1889, the chief stood up against the British Empire and said, look, you're not going to take my land. You're not going to ask me to pay tax in my own land when I give you land to come and escape for free. I'm not going to do it. And there was war, and this chief is considered a terrorist. So, imperialism goes on. Okay, all this war has been planned for ages, for 20 years ago. So, we've got a long way to fight against wars. Conspiracy 
Um, that's the first thing that I want to put out there. That for the last 12 years, there's been blunders and continual mistakes. Um, nothing captures the public's imagination uh, like a story of hypocrisy and conspiracy. This has been the history of the intervention by the West. But it is precisely that, it's the history. Um, my question for the opposition um, is that they've been very keen to push forward all the mistakes of the Western intervention, but a reticence to consider the future. Uh, so my question for them, are, for the opposition, are you pro-Iraq or are you simply anti-Western? Iraq has masses of oil, and of course, all Western companies are charging there to invest in it. It had, prior to all its troubles, a massively educated population. It's a country of enormous potential, now divided and unstable. And the instability that let in Al Qaeda was the responsibility of the occupation, not preparing to keep order in the country after you've invaded it. So, but I mean, the question we were asked to address was what it's, was it worth it? Not, What's the future for Iraq? The future for Iraq is potentially, is potentially fine, but of course it's in a region that is still being destabilised by other forces. So the sovereign right to supply as long as there's stability. You know, we, can, we can do whatever we want to do. No, not at all. But one, the, the argument here is that all the death and killing and sectarianism and bombs came after the invasion and wasn't the responsibility of the war. I'm saying, and it's absolutely the principle of the Geneva uh, Principles of War, an invader and occupier has responsibility for keeping order and keeping basic humanitarian order for the people in the country that they've occupied. Can I just briefly answer the gentleman's question? You asked, are we pro-Iraq or anti-West? I'm neither anti-Iraq nor pro-Iraq, neither pro-West nor anti-West. I'm not a tribalist. I'm pro-human rights, I'm pro-truth, I'm pro-justice, I'm pro-law. I don't frankly give a damn whether Iraqis have more cell phones now than they did before or what the debt-to-GDP ratio is. I care about people's lives being lost, that's what I care about. before we went to war with him. Uh, I was a nine-year-old who was well aware as a Shia Muslim what an oppressive brewery he was. And I was disappointed that Bernard's party was in government selling weapons and he did it. And you're now on that side with the people who were supporting him at the time. When we were talking about, remember, the 80s, all the people who went to war, Tony Blair, Jack Scott, none of them were involved in the anti-Saddam struggle. None of them solved any EDMs. None of them signed anything in Parliament. So let's not go around 57% from Russia, 13% from France, and 12% from China. So, you know, you've got a little point to make about the relationship with the West and Saddam Hussein, which doesn't cover the West with glory, but it really doesn't justify the position or taking some of the figures I'm using. Okay, 